the thing about Tristan and Angel, mm -hmm. I've never, I've been alive for 67 years. I've never seen a couple so committed. And so, you know, the Bible says, cleave to one another and become as one. <laughs> well, they actually did it. Uh, my mother was very religious, uh, not sanctimonious, not, you know, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. very seriously religious and died with the Bible. On this episode of Playtime, the story of two extraordinary Chicago artists, Tristan Meineke and Angel Casey, against the world. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. For the gold, it takes real guts to stand on moral principle on foundational human rights. But standing is only part of the process. Those who often take those stands face the all-too-predictable backlash, often for a lifetime, by those without that backbone and clear vision, or who target a person for their stalwart integrity, moral consistency, and intestinal fortitude. It isn't simply taking a stand, but taking a stand in defense of those struggling for their basic rights over the dictates of power, politics, and a narrowly focused religious interpretation. There are all too few of these principled people like Tristan Meineke and Angel Casey. Tristan Meineke was a prolific 20th century Chicago artist. His wife, Angel Casey, uh, an early television pioneer, was both muse and principled partner whose reputation suffered in their stance for civil rights. Tristan and Angel... Uh, Angel's eldest son, Brad Meineke, is on a mission to maintain their legacy and work and is exceedingly patient with my uh, voice and breathing level here. But but uh, how you doing, Brad? I'm doing very well, my friend, and I want to thank you for offering me the opportunity to be here and spew with you. I uh, When you look up the word iconoclast in the dictionary, you should see a picture of Angel Casey and Tristan Meineke. And we are going to work on that, man. Uh, we're going to work on that very, very hard. And we meant to to deal with your your parents' uh, astounding story, historic story, on our radio show. I think this podcast is the is the optimal place to do that because we can take the time and weave in 
some of those textures, those sound and musical textures that really give them a, a significant place in time. So I think time and place of your parents' lives is integral to the aspect of their story. We're going to begin at the very beginnings of their story, if uh, if you'll bear with me here for just a moment. Certainly. Both of your parents were born in uh, 1916, right? Um, mom was born in 1919. Dad was born in 1916. Okay. Okay. Mom died in 2007. Dad in 2004. Okay. Ironically, they were both 88. So, so the Wikipedia page is, is probably a little incorrect on your mom. It has her at, at, uh, 1916. They probably confused it with your dad here for, for a little bit of context, 1916. Uh, if, if you think we've got it bad now, man. Uh, war was raging in Europe. Uh, it was not going well for the Allies. Uh, in the Battle of the Somme, in one day, the British lost more than 19,000 men. Uh, Tristan Zara founded the uh, the artist movement Dadaism that year. Uh, Emma Goldman was arrested for lecturing on birth control in the United States. Uh, the, the Mexican Revolution was happening. Pancho Villa uh Led uh, led a group of 500 Mexican raiders in an attack against Caracha. Yeah, uh, led an attack against uh, Columbus, New Mexico, killing 12 U.S. soldiers. Um, there was the Easter uprising, uh, which occurred in Ireland. Uh, members of the Irish uh, Republican uh, Brotherhood proclaimed uh, an Irish Republic. The U.S. invaded the Dominican Republic. The communists in Russia were poised to take power, upsetting a 400-year balance of, of royal hegemony. Uh, there was the Everett Massacre in a, in a clash between police and union workers in, uh, in Washington State, uh, a deeply divided nation, much as we are now, uh, uh, argued over U.S. entrance into World War I, which hadn't, had, hadn't happened yet, wouldn't, wouldn't occur for another year, uh, and uh, in a very, very contentious presidential race, uh, took a full week to finally decide after the November uh, the November election. On top of that, by the way, uh, Mary, a circus element, was hanged uh, in Irwin, Tennessee, uh, for killing her handler, um, which is just kind of uh, an, an absurdity. Problem on the one hand. And also kind of a crazy thing to do to, to an animal. To an, to an elephant. Yeah. Um, but but the, I, I think that just puts into context where we are now and and the world that your parents were born into. Uh, Angel was born in Middleton in, in Ohio, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. Have you been there? Absolutely. Yeah. It I was it very well. It was uh, it was part of the underground railroad i i understand it was mm -hmm. uh, which i think is is really potentially informative about your mom's upbringing with regards to race tristan was born in uh kansas correct born in kansas but he grew up in ann arbor that's right that's right uh atchison kansas i i, I think he was born yes. people people remember the song uh the atchison topeka and Santa Fe, Santa Fe which terminated uh, terminated there. We hear that whistle down the line. I figure that's engine number 49. She's the only one that'll sound that way on the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe. 
she knows she's gonna meet a friend. Folks around these parts get the time of day. From the actresses to pick and the Santa Fe, here she comes. Hey, Jimmy, better get the ring. He was just a child when they moved to Ann Arbor, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father was Bruno, Dr. Bruno Meineke, foremost scholar of Latin. Uh, he come from a long line of scholars. His his grandfather, my great-grandfather, was a scholar as well, Lutheran minister. Yeah. Some kids raised him with an axe handle and a Bible. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's how it was back then. But uh, he informed his children, you will learn English, you will learn German, and you will learn one additional language. Well, you will wow. play piano plus one other instrument. Well, wow. and he will do all the other things that you have to do on a farm. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So it was a very strict and disciplined environment uh, that my grandfather came from. And he tried to uh, mirror that, uh, but in a more liberal fashion. But that wasn't liberal enough for dad. So him and my father butted heads uh, for their entire lives. And uh, that was, uh, you know, it was um, uh, an interesting. uh, Did you ever did you ever meet your grandfather? I knew him very well. And and a lot of time with him. What what was your impression? Because because grandkids can have a a very different impression of of a grandparent than than a child who has to grow up um, disciplined by that by that parent. he He was very officious. Yeah. And I was playing piano one day and he came in and he started denigrating me because I wasn't playing Flight of the Bumblebee correctly. Wow. Uh, and that made me sad. So I started crying and uh, that got dad mad and then blah, blah, you know, one thing led to another. Other than that one incident, I never really countered <laughs> his strictness. Um, but mm-hmm. that, that was, you know, I remember it to this day. I'm 67. So I was, it was about, indicative. It was, in, it, it was, it, it was indicative for yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, it was very hard for people back then to be anything close to who they really were. Yeah. Everybody was so constrained. My uh, grandmother was a concert pianist who toured the, toured the world. And she, when she married Bruno, she settled down. She, you know, and that, was probably uh daunting you know there's yeah. a lot of daunting things that people had to deal with and a lot of yeah. kind of false little costumes they had to wear to yeah. get through the, the day and that's you know that has been uh, a hallmark of, of global culture for decades and it is now starting yeah. to uh, evaporate you know mm-hmm. paradigms are getting turned over tables are getting flipped you know so to speak uh, and they were instrumental in doing that. And they were railing for it in the 40s. And they thought that when they encountered racism, they were stunned. Uh-huh. They didn't understand it fundamentally. They had no clue how you could use something as ephemeral, as meaningless as the, the tint of one's skin as a judge of character. Your grandparents you're talking about. Yes, this is my parents. Yeah, yeah. And to be very clear... They championed character. When they met people of low character, as they described them, mm-hmm. they would bite into them. They would tell them. I remember many times that my dad would, you know, light into people as we were just walking down the street because they didn't meet his standards of, wow. you know, for 
you know, for he didn't like. Um, so how did your how did your grandparents end up in Atchison, which was named for which was named for a U.S. senator, I believe, uh, who was very pro-slavery. And 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 Kansas was was established as a pro-slavery state. How did they end up uh, in in Atchison? The, when you're a scholar, you go where the university hired okay. you. Okay. And he became a tenured professor. Uh, he, my dad used to laugh about the depression because he said, "Well, the depression was great for for them because okay. Bruno had a steady job, so he had cash, and no one else had cash, so it was it was as if they were wealthy." Yeah. Um, and he, you know, really loved Ann Arbor and exploited the university atmosphere. Have you ever been to Ann Arbor? I have many, many times. It's one of my um, favorite towns in the country. It's 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 a gorgeous town. Is uh, I've got a got a friend who's a uh, um, a Methodist minister uh, just outside of Ann Arbor. So um, we're 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 gonna get we're gonna get there again soon here as well. Let me let me go here about the parenting. How did your dad's upbringing inform his parenting skills with you uh, and your brother? Well, I can't speak for my brother. We were mm-hmm. seven years apart mm-hmm. and grew up in different environments and scenarios. We're very close. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we love each other a lot. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're very different. So I don't know how it was particularly for him. Mm-hmm. For me, basically, they just let me be alone. They let me do whatever I was going to do. They okay. Discipline me that much. Mm-hmm. Um, I was particularly hard-headed as my father and, um, that, you know, they, their attitude was kind of hands off, yeah. um, and just let it be what it will be. I did have issues in the neighborhood, uh, and I enlisted my father's aid and he informed me that he was unable to fight my battles for me. <laughs> that was a significant, uh, time. That was when I was about five, <laughs> um, and but other than that, uh, they were, you know, they were just normal parents, but they didn't really try to control the uncontrollable kid, me. Okay. Uh, All too, right. much, too much. They pretty much let me alone. And your mom, um, your mom danced and sang with her with her father, uh, yes, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh in, in amateur minstrel shows. <laughs> amateur minstrel in uh-huh. amateur minstrel shows. And I'm sure back in those days, there was blackface involved. There was all kinds of stuff going on. So she also danced in a performance at the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. She did. Was was there any was there any sort of casual crossover? Because Cincinnati isn't that far from Ann Arbor. No, there wasn't. Though he might have seen pictures of her in the press of the day. Okay. Um. But the thing about Tristan and Angel, mm-hmm. I've never I've been alive for 67 years. I've never seen a couple so committed. And so, you know, the Bible says cleave to one another and become as one. <laughs> well, they actually did it. Uh, my mother was very religious, uh, not sanctimonious, not, you know, in, uh, yeah. very yeah. seriously religious and died with a Bible verse in her hand, as a matter of fact. In her view, Christianity was about love. Mm-hmm. It was about loving 
people that were unlovable. That's literally how she interpreted well, it. That's a beautiful sentiment, man. She was fast. Well, it's what it says, but yeah, she, yeah. She was uh, flabbergasted when people didn't, when they called themselves Christians, but then didn't have that love for their fellow for people. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, her, she listened to what Jesus said and she, she would tell you, he said, mm-hmm. don't do that. So, okay. You don't, you know, <laughs> you love everybody. You love the ones that are hard to love. She would say, well, I don't like them, but I love them. <laughs> you know, so they had, they, but they had this unique way of relying on each other. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I got a gal in Kalamazoo. Don't want to boast, but I know she's the toast of Kalamazoo. Have gone by. My, my, how she grew. I liked her looks when I carried her books in Kalamazoo. I'm gonna send a wire hopping on a flight. Leaving today. Am I dreaming? I can hear screaming. I am Mr. Jackson. Everything's okay. When they, um, when the world turned against them, and it did several times, yeah, um, they retreated to each other, and they were fine. They loved the fact that they had each sanctuary, other. sanctuary, and they always, you know, in, in a way, Bill, they had something that can't be bought. Mm-hmm. What they had was incredibly valuable and incredibly precious, and mm-hmm. it can't be bought. You can't buy it. Uh, and that, you know, on, on on both a positive way and a negative way, they were a lot. And they, and they they so so they faced the ultimate test. And we're gonna get we're gonna get to that that test here here in a bit. But I I I kind of wanted to follow the traje- trajectory of their their lives a little For bit sure. because I think uh, there's a great great story there. Your mother always knew that she wanted to entertain. She attended the University of Cincinnati, um, the College Conservatory of Music. At the same time, and 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 this is an important. Your father developed an interest in jazz by the age of twelve. So just about just about the same time as your mom was discovering the 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 dance performance on stage, your dad was your dad was discovering jazz. on 2022 North Cleveland where he could work and party at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Simultaneously. And he did this for over 10 years. 
every day, mm -hmm. basically. So you never knew who you would bump into. Uh, and as a child, to me, I didn't pay any attention to what was going on in the yeah. grown -up world. I was yeah. interested in my kids' world. So I kept bumping into people, and it turns out later, like, one day I trip over a guy that's sleeping on the lawn, and it was Eddie Harris, the sax wow. player that was a friend of the family, a friend of a friend of the family. polite and we talked for a while and uh i just went on and kept playing baseball which is how i bumped into him i was chasing <laughs> the ball um, but your uh your your grandfather was very seem seemed to have been very encouraging uh for your dad to play jazz as as a um as a classical musician that and and at that time that was a very progressive move on your grandpa grand, grandfather's part, right? Well, musicians understand musicians. Okay. And when grandfather looked at jazz scores, mm -hmm. he saw what was happening mm -hmm. music. Mm -hmm. And he saw that this was trailblazing, that these people were developing something new. Yeah. Something new in music. You know, every note has been played by 1812 on the piano. Yeah. 1820 or somewhere thereabouts but every combination of notes possible had been played in western music yeah uh with the you know with the halftone scale but mm -hmm. um so he was very my grandfather kind of ironically loved jazz uh because he understood what was going on theoretically and that mm -hmm. he loved it on a theoretical basis i don't think he you know uh, uh i hate to use the expression but i don't think my grandfather ever shook his ass Mm -hmm. you know, he mm -hmm. was not a, a loose gent. He was a very reserved, you know, German, yeah, yeah. you know, scholar, and uh, you know, even, even sweating would probably have been untoward or something like that. Was was he was he uh, was he an immigrant from Ger uh, Germany or no? His father was. His father was okay. So 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 your your dad is third generation. Your fourth, third generation. Generation, fourth yeah. generation. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And um, so you know, Grandpa uh, loved the fact that dad played jazz and thought it was a brilliant bought him a clarinet yeah bought him a clarinet and um he was in the hospital for pneumonia and they told him here smoke some cigarettes and play the clarinet that'll cure your pneumonia <laughs> so he's in the hospital lighting up and uh it was was pretty funny but, can't do that anymore no you can't do that anymore but um bruno had a theory that uh, music had been used in Greek medicine, ancient medicine. He was a, a scholar okay. of the classics. And he wrote his uh, PhDs, a couple of his, one of his theses around that, that, mm -hmm. that idea. Mm -hmm. And dad, you know, kept a lot of that. And mm -hmm. uh, while they Pythagoras were, and the tones. and Yes. And, yeah. and while they were, while they butted heads their whole life, they were also very united. They, you know, they talked about music all the time. Uh -huh. And he would, they would have long phone calls about music. So uh, it wasn't as if it was, there was no love lost. There, there was a lot of love there, but they were still, you know, basically butting heads 
till the day they till the day they died. Yeah, yeah. Till the day my my grandfather died. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was it was still a loving relationship, and they respected each other musically. Um, but your so so your dad had had learned piano, correct? Right. And then, but he picked up the clarinet by ear. By ear. Yep. Absolutely. Picked and then really, learned really well. to, to improvise to improvise. travel around Chicago looking for places to improvise to the kinds of music to the kind yeah. of music that yeah. he was looking for and he knew what it was and he didn't care where it was wherever it was he was going to be right. so he ended up in places where he would be the only white person there often mm -hmm. and kind of didn't even notice because he wasn't there to discuss race or politics or anything else. He was there to play music, uh -huh, uh -huh. To play with the best. And white musicians would tell him, they would say things like, how can you play with those animals? And he would say, animals? There's more musical IQ in their little toe than your whole family. Yeah. How dare you call these geniuses animals? sometimes claimed that he had the first black and tan band the first mixed race band in mm -hmm. chicago uh 43 44 45 somewhere okay yeah still world war ii's going on um and the post-war is when but between uh 1932 and 43 right he he was recording on uh on yeah. acetates do you have any of those acetates we do not Oh my goodness! You know, I I, I had a conversation John with John Corbett. May have managed to save one or two. Okay, they were very um, you know acetates are very hard to keep. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't age well. I I had a conversation with uh, with Martin Barr from Jethro Tull, and his first band. He was still carrying around acetates uh of of those recordings and, and and i saved him by finding uh some of those recordings on uh on youtube but he never knew that they existed 
And those were his only precious copies uh, un- until, you know, until then. And I don't, I don't know if, if people realize how fragile those acetates are and they, they, oh, they degrade terrible. over time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the, and I don't want to use the word tragedy, but one of the sadder things about mm-hmm. it is that we have no uh, film of Angel on television because they didn't keep the film. Yep. yep. It was before yep. and. Uh, they didn't even do tape delay on radio mm-hmm. when she was 24. She was doing five live read shows a day, 52 weeks a year, 52 weeks a year. And she we're we're gonna we're gonna get to that in in just a moment. But I wanted to go here. Yes. Um, your dad also gained some notoriety, not just with music, but for these moody watercolors between that that fall somewhere between impressionism and this this rustic. Americana realism um, with hints of expressionism uh, that I think you guys labeled one dash forty eight. It's a it's it's kind of a a feed house uh, with yes. a with a stone chimney. He was um, known as a, a quote unquote competent watercolorist. Indeed, he was absolutely yeah. more than uh, competent. No, I know um, that was that was the yeah. Viewer had said that he's a competent. Uh huh. Uh, watercolorist which the reviewer took as a compliment um not sure how my father took it but uh he was well known in that regard mm-hmm. as a painter and uh was beginning to get some prominent exhibitions and he was in the detroit uh, yeah. art institute uh and uh, also in the chicago art institute for a while yeah yeah um, but yeah he was doing he was painting at or drawing at three yeah Uh, one of the we have a drawing that he did at three where he would sit and wait for a milk cart a horse-drawn milk cart to pull up in front of the house it's the same time every day and he would sit there and wait for it which for a three-year-old is kind of a mature thing to do Uh and he would draw it and he drew it pretty darn well for a Mm -hmm. two or three-year-old i forget exactly how old he was but it was somewhere in there and um so he was, he kind of always knew he was put on this world to draw stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He so he would, for him, it was always, should I be drawing or should I be playing and, uh, music? It was always art or music, art or music. And mm-hmm. and so while he was at the University of Michigan, um, mm-hmm. several of his watercolors uh, caught the eye of the Art Institute director at the time, uh, this uh, Daniel Rich. Right. Daniel Rich is the one who described him as a competent yeah. watercolorist. Yeah. Yeah. Which for which for Rich was a big compliment. I I guess it would be, even though even though I I would differ with Rich, and say that he Me was too. he was better than uh, than competent. The, so there's the very first conversation that I ever had with my wife, uh, in in a little art shop in in besieged Sarajevo, 1994. Uh, she was an art student at the time. Uh, and everything in that shop was way beyond her her ability to you know to to afford. Uh, they were they were having trouble. They were having trouble just getting water to the house, let alone let alone food. So, um, but we had a conversation because she liked she liked the the control of of oil paints, and and I liked the um, the sort of organic nature of watercolor in which 
you could control watercolor to an extent, but at some point you had to relinquish control. Sorry, train here. You had to relinquish control to the medium and and let the and let the let the the paint flow. You could control that to a certain extent, but if you controlled it too much, and and, and this this is what won me over for her. If you controlled it too much, uh, that that you you ran the risk of of ruining the composition. I found your your father's control over watercolor exemplary, in which he could render these hard lines, you know, the 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 tree mm -hmm. limbs, um, and and then allow allow these sweeping flowing. Um, motions of the sky and clouds to to create mood there's um, some beautiful pieces yeah, and he yeah. completely left that style behind which is kind of a shame <laughs> he, he reprised it in the 80s when he did a, a watercolor of my brother sitting in a fishing boat and that's on the website and it's it's a beautiful yep. picture of a, of a small child with a fishing rod yeah uh, and that's kind of hearkening back to what mm -hmm. he did in his late teens and early 20s. He was making money as a graphic artist when he figured out that newspapers would pay him money. He was about 13 when he figured this out and he would draw stuff for the newspapers and it was very heavy and very <laughs> black lines and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, he, but, you know, he would make five, ten bucks, which in those days was like 50 or 100 a day easily, probably even more. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so he, he was always using art to, uh, advance his life. Okay. You know, advance what he liked to do. Brothers uh, reached uh, or came to uh, Chicago around 1942. Did, did they serve in the armed forces during the Second World no, War? Sir. No, no, sir. Dad was a draft dodger in World War II. Wow, wow. He went through all these machinations or mm -hmm. to make sure he didn't have to go serve. Mm -hmm. And when asked, he said, "I quote." If you think I'm going to let some hillbilly sergeant tell me what to do, you're out of your mind. Okay. All right. That was his attitude towards it. He wasn't going to go to a place where somebody he would consider not um, a scholar could tell him what to do. Yeah. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't a uh, it, it it wasn't a, a patriotic or a lack of patriotism. It was it was more a um, sort. A, a power dynamic kind kind of kind of issue with was someone who he felt wasn't up to his standard, right? 
uh, someone he didn't think was as smart as him. As smart as him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He he was he had a pretty high IQ and he knew it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not as high as he might have thought. Maybe who knows? Yeah. yeah. But, um, well, you know, he had a, he had an ego for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the bottom line was he wasn't patriotic in the sense that he thought dying for a country or for a cause in a military operation was smart. Mm-hmm. He didn't think it was useful. And mm-hmm. he didn't think uh, he knew that America was not what America claimed to be, and he he was very well aware of that. And and that maybe centered on the race issue. It centered on the race issue, yeah. and it centered on other socioeconomic issues, which okay. he found to be vastly unfair, vastly uh, corrupt, and uh, he also hated corruption. Mm-hmm. And American politics to this day is shot full of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially also in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, in the post-war, World War II and the post-World War II era, mm-hmm. corruption was the order of the day, my friend. Everything yeah. was corrupt. Yeah. Everything was corrupt. Yeah. And, you know, you, you would, uh, if you get pulled over by an officer, you'd put a $10 bill in the in the, the cap, yep. Pull it and take it and hand you your license back. And that was everybody did it. Yeah, that was and you know so to my father that was uh, hypocrisy, and it was blatant hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And how do you dare you be so hypocritical and then ask me to go die for your hypocrisy? That's yeah. that was his basically his uh, idea on war. And when I was my number was pulled for Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had plans to send me to Canada. They didn't even consult me. Wow. <laughs> well, my mother came in and said, hey, your number got pulled. You're going to Canada. I said, what? What do I know in Canada? She says, nobody, but you're going. I said, why? She says, you're not going to go to the Army. I said, you're right about that. Okay, I'm going to Canada. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was, I had the same attitude as my dad. I, you know, I, I'm not the dumbest guy on the face of the planet, and I'm not going to listen to you know, people tell me what to do and all that stuff. It's- I just had a, uh, I had a conversation with um, Leo Sagadin, uh, who's a 96 year. Yeah. Do you know Leo? Slightly. Okay. All right. Leo, Leo's, a, Leo's a wonderful, wonderful friend. And so he just, and I, and I just wrote the afterword uh, for his, his latest book on, uh, on his Holocaust paintings, with, which people can go and see. Um, at the Noise Art Center in Evanston on April 14th. But we we were talking about the hypocrisy of the met, uh, of the American government uh, and and the American business community with regards to to Jews. So your your parents probably and and uh, you know, the, so Jews were were a big big part of the uh, of the American uh, entertainment industry uh, in the in the forties and fifties. Um, so your parents your parents would have would have absolutely been um, been privy to to some of those conversations. Of course, um, but it it feels it feels like they were most affected by uh, by the black experience in in American society. And both of those communities faced uh, incredible um, hardship and bigotry 
by the overarching American society, the so-called Judeo-Christian ethic in this country. Absolutely, um, they did. Yeah. And, and my right. parents hated that. Yeah. They couldn't stomach. Yeah. yeah. They didn't understand how, literally didn't understand how some, how one person could treat another person that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they knew they were very, for their day, um, they followed the science of the day. Yeah. And the science of the day told them that people were people. Yeah. And, you know, then my mother would read the Bible and would see that, you know, she, like one of my father's pet peeves was the Norwegian Jesus. <laughs> he was always preaching about that. And he drew several uh, pictures of Jesus as the Middle Eastern guy that he would have been. So he would always tell people, you know, Jesus was brown, my friend. <laughs> And didn't look white like you, and didn't have blue eyes. We're we're just we're just coming to that realization now as a society. Uh, so it sounds like your father was way way ahead of the he curve knew, on that one. He knew it back then, and, and yeah. race was a big thing with him because he didn't understand it, and if, mm -hmm. if he didn't understand the the, the racial animus. So yeah. he wanted to, uh, yeah. and and he didn't. And he's one of his uh, objections was he to armed services, to anything, was he saw that racism was integral to America. Okay. That it was institutionalized, it was formalized, it was yeah. in pop culture, subculture, every aspect of culture was tainted with it. Yeah, yeah. And he said it was going to, you know, really hurt the country, and it did, and it mm -hmm. still does to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we, we shouldn't have done it, but we did. So, you know, here we are. And he wasn't going to have any part of it. Okay. So anything that had to do with advancing the mechanisms that put these that were put in place, he sure. would not have anything to do. So that was his political reason for not fighting in World War II. Emotional reason was what, I, as I described. By the mid '40s, uh, mm -hmm. your mom Angel uh, was performing in radio. Yep. Yeah. In Chicago radio, actually. Uh huh. Uh huh. For three uh, years. Do how how did your parents meet? Dog, do you know? Do you know why they're ringing? Why no? I don't know why they're ringing. Well, you're gonna get a big surprise, cause I'm gonna put you wise. The bells are ringing for me and my gal. The birds are singing for me and my gal. Everybody's been knowing to a wedding they're going, and for weeks they've been sewing. Every Susie and Sal, they're congregating for me and my game. My parents' love story is phenomenal. Yeah. And it started off with a big bang, like with everything else that they did. My dad is sitting in a restaurant called Ballantine's. Uh-huh. It was uh, 1200 on Dearborn, right yeah. where Mother's is today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right by there. And he's sitting there with a, a friend, and he, three women come in. My mom's among them. And he's stunned. He sees her from across the restaurant, and he's stunned. And he, his friend keeps elbowing him. Hey, I'm talking to you. Would you pay attention? He goes, shut up. I'm looking at that woman. And so my his friend turns around and goes, wow. So 
okay. So he's just staring at them and they sit down. And so that both parties order their, their uh, food. Right. And he stands up and does a thing on the glass, gets everybody's attention. And he says, my friends, I'm here to announce that that woman is the only woman I will ever marry. Wow. And he says this, makes this oh. grand pronouncement, and then sits down. My mother and her friends laugh, and, you know, and she's like, oh, just, you know, blah, 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 you don't know, know that, how that goes. Yeah. And so he waits, and the friends leave, and he comes over and sits down and starts talking. And he said he didn't stop talking for two years, which is how long it took him mm-hmm. to convince her Mm-hmm. to spend her life with him. You think I don't love you Oh, but I do How can I show that I do You think I don't get blue And it was a match made in heaven. They were one person. I've never seen a couple so devoted to each other. And it's not like they didn't have fights. They both had crazy tempers. And when they got revved up, it was something to see. But you always knew that it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. You always knew that at the end of the day, it'd be Triss and Angel, no matter but what. What do you think What do you think did it for your mom to convince, convince her that your dad was the one? My dad had a way about him. Yeah. And he could accomplish things. He designed the first phone book in Chicago. <laughs> And he marketed okay. it. Oh. He did it as a sales device. Mm-hmm. So my salesmanship comes from my father. I can't claim it's just mine. Um, but he, he was always, you know, making up something and selling it. Mm-hmm. And so he was an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. And he had vision. And he, he was romantic. And he was handsome. And he also really loved her. Yeah. Uh, he proved it. Yeah. Um, she was a... She had been married to a guy who went to South, went to Korea during the Korean War and then just stopped communicating with her. And she didn't understand, broke her heart. Yeah. She was in the middle of all this career stuff. So she didn't let it get her Mm -hmm. down, but it it really affected her. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't going to make that mistake again. So it took, he had to court her for two years. And that's a long time. It is. And she's a stubborn Norwegian woman, man. You aren't going to move her. One. But he wasn't. He wasn't a nobody. He had. He was kind oh, of no. making a name for himself around town, he was right? A window designer at Saks Fifth Avenue. He had a million okay. side hustles. He was a very well-known jazz musician. Yeah. Um, and he was um, an edgy guy. You know, he mm-hmm. was. Uh, he was on the edge of everything, and he knew about a lot of stuff. So mm-hmm. he could, you know, razzle and dazzle, and <laughs> and she liked razzle and dazzle. And <laughs> so they they were kind of they were very simpatico. I've never seen two people more simpatico wow. than Tristan and Angel Casey. It was it that's was literally the proverbial match made in heaven. That's and, great. And again, they had a stormy relationship. I don't want to paint it as this 
panacea where they were always yeah. happy and all this stuff. It's not not wasn't that way. Two sovereign people. Two sovereign yeah. people you have to negotiate that space between. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. Boy, boy. And they had it very well worked out. There were certain things that were angels and certain things that were dads, and that was that's just how you know Tristan's and that's just how it was. Um the only person in the world my father was afraid of was Angel Casey. Southern trees bear strange fruit. Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees i saw my dad with me at his side actually which was probably inadvisable in hindsight but uh, there was a, he ran into a black guy named Don Adams, a very nice gentleman, very nice guy, taught me how to field uh, second base. Uh-huh. And there was a group of white folks in the neighborhood who d- took exception to that and gathered outside of front of our house. And I'm outside playing, so I run and I see these idiots gathering there, like talking and swearing and, you know, we're going to burn this down, all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I said, Dad, there's some people out here. And uh, so he comes out, he's carrying a fireman's axe. Uh, one hand, and he had, had his shirt off, and he's standing in there because we had a pool, so he's usually he was in swimming trunks. They had his pants uh-huh. on, which was interesting. But um, so there was a the leader of this group of people was this guy named uh, Robert Williams, and he was a, an Appalachian white fella, um, and pretty two fisted guy, yeah, pretty violent, very violent guy. His kids were very violent. He I don't, I don't think people really really understand the the temperament of uh, of race relations at well, that and time. also the temperament of that age yeah uh, fist yeah. fights were common yeah uh it was known as a way to settle your differences <clears throat> yeah in those days you'd say step outside and you would actually step outside and go fight yeah uh, and then you would come back in mm-hmm. after the fight was over mm-hmm. it was and it was considered uh there was a formality to it yeah, uh, it yeah. was uh, unwritten, you know, unwritten, but it was still, still, it, it still existed. Mm-hmm. And he's all these people are yelling at him, and he just put, points the axe at Williams. He goes, he, and he said something like, "The day you sobs pay one penny of my mortgage is the day you can tell me who, who to rent to." Until then, and then he swore at him, mm-hmm. and he said, "Bring it." And he goes, "Williams, you're first." And he pointed with the fire axe. <laughs> so Williams put his hands up like this and he goes, I'm not going to go after this guy. And they, the, the crowd disperses and all this stuff. And I'm looking at my dad like he's like Superman, like this huge hero. Yeah. He just faced off 20, 20 angry men. Yeah. These, these were angry men. And these were not, you know, these were each each of these people individually would fight you individually. It was, yep. Fisticuffs were part of the day. And it's so stunning to today they're not. Yeah. It, it's yeah. no one ever does that. Mm-hmm. 
these days. And, and maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but to me, it's very noticeable. And, you know, now people have these arguments and stuff. In those days, when you argue with somebody, they expected you to come outside and fight. Yeah. yeah. If you weren't willing to do that, then you weren't a person of consequence and they didn't have to pay any attention to anything you said. So it's <laughs> kind of very different than it is today. But nope. my dad and mom negotiated that super well. Uh-huh. And they never had any problems. Your me. your dad, um, your dad would study composition later uh under the American Five uh composer, uh John J. Becker. For people who don't who don't know, he does these great percussive pieces like uh Vigilante, uh the African inspired um Abongo uh from 1933 uh, and these great frenetic uh orchestral pieces um uh, symphony uh symphonia brevis uh from 1929 is, is the first one that was a piece of work for sure uh he he was he was an astounding artist well ahead of his time Did you got on the phone with Bruno and they had a two hour conversation? It was really, I swear to yeah, because they were it was you know, musicologist to musicologist, yeah, yeah. Um, what what did your what was your dad's biggest takeaway from um Becker? My father loved atonality, yeah, he loved dissonance, yeah, yeah, he loved how to say it. I think that comes through in his. In his visual art as well. It does. It absolutely does. Yeah. And if you're familiar with the painting Jasmine, uh -huh. it's the one uh -huh. that you used to illustrate this. He did that in 1947. Yeah. And people told him, Tristan, musicians don't look like that. He said, I swear to God, he said, they will. <laughs> very offhanded, very matter of fact. Oh, they will. And he claimed to have this ability to see the future. I'm not sure if he could or not, but he claimed that he had it. And uh, yeah, it's uh, he may may very well have had because he did he did do some amazing things, and he was very ahead yeah. of his time. and And he's the one that taught me that being ahead of your time is overrated. Um, yeah, you're you're going to have to see if you can if you can track down some of those acetates. Um, because I, I think those would be John Corbett. Um, I'll call yeah. him after we're done. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, but nineteen forty-eight, your mom uh was was appearing on uh WGN TV. Had to be one of one of the very first appearances uh on WGN TV. Uh and which went on uh, GN, but I believe her contract was with WGBT. Okay. BKB. Okay. Yeah, okay. BKB. Okay. Uh, and that was where her show uh, and her shows there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I know she was on WGN a lot. And I know she was good friends with Fraser Thomas. He was up the house 
occasionally. Yeah, yeah. People like uh, also as, as uh, a child also... seeing Fraser Thomas walk in your house was just like oh I, I can imagine I, like I was heaven. I couldn't believe it. I, I was I was such a big fan of of Fraser Thomas for the first third of my life. This is WGN Television, Chicago. Good afternoon, I'm Fraser Thomas, here again to welcome you and act as your host for another Sunday presentation of Family Classics. She made guest appearances with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and Orson Welles and Spike Jones and Dave Galloway, all these all these luminaries of, of early radio and television. It's the Martin and Lewis Show! The National Broadcasting Company brings you transcribed from Hollywood, the Martin and Lewis Show. Featuring Flo McMichael, Sheldon Leonard, Ben Alexander, Dick Stabile and his orchestra, and starring Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Well, right now we find Dean and Jerry in their hotel room preparing to go to their nightclub. The boys have made a strenuous series of personal appearances. Jerry, especially, is all tired out. Gee, Dean, I sure wish we didn't have to go to the club tonight. I'd rather just stay here in the room and read a book or listen to our Martin and Lewis program being released at a more inconvenient time. <laughs> you know, Jerry, you don't seem to have much pep tonight. I think you need some proper exercise, Jerry, and maybe a bodybuilding course. What'd you say? I said, wouldn't you like to take a course in bodybuilding? She was there at, sure. at the start. And she was well-known and professionally incredibly respected. Yep. She was very adroit, very nimble. She was known for being able to cover mistakes, which was so important because without tape delay, mm -hmm. when you made a mistake, and everybody does, it goes right on the air. So you have to have nimbleness to cover these mistakes. And, you know, you have to be able to have, be, you know, good with words and, and all this stuff. And she was yeah. great with that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and she also loved and adored children. That she, her early childhood education was her field outside of acting was her uh -huh. field of expertise. Which led her to the Playhouse. Yes. Uh, in 19, was that 1955? 55. Yeah, yeah on WBKB. WBKB. And she played Bach and Mozart uh, instead yeah. of little kids tunes and she read actual literature things to do or make uh sir worthington wiggle uh she uh, was was her was her silent uh puppet partner one of the first uh -huh. she created the character did all the artwork for it um you know she was uh, again entrepreneurial like yeah like my yeah and, and she came up with the concept and the the puppeteer that she worked with, uh, Bruce Newton, was a great guy, and he he mm -hmm. came up with characters on his own as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had a lot of respect for each other. They worked 
you know, together for many, many years. Um, but when and, and a and a contemporary of of Howdy Doody and oh, absolutely, Ran and Ollie and absolutely, mm -hmm. and Garfield Goose and you know the whole Bozo the Clown, uh, you know all that's that that was all going on. Say, kids, what time is it? Okay, gang, let's go. It's Howdy Doody time. It's Howdy Doody time. Bob Smith and Howdy too. Say Howdy do to you. Let's give our hands and cheers. Cause Howdy Doody's here. It's time to start. She was at the start of all that. And 58, 59, 60 was when her career really essentially nosedived. Yeah. Because she had lost professional representation for her stance on uh, racial inclusion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was not accepted mm -hmm. uh, in those days. And which is laughable today. We yeah. look at the, the images today that she was fired for and they're just normal images with people with funny clothes on. Hold that thought because we're gonna we're gonna get to that in in much more detail here in just a minute. Um, she also um, kids were always an essential part of of her life. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And in the meantime, your dad was still yeah, making a was still making a, a name for himself as an artist. Absolutely. Substantial name. He was prolific. He he was absolutely yeah. prolific. Yeah. Created over seven hundred pieces during his lifetime. And and some some astounding work. There are so many movements and cross currents in the art world in the early and mid part of the uh, of the twentieth century. Surrealist, expressionist, abstract art, realism, Dadaism, color field, constructionism, uh, deconstructionism, cubism. Your father dabbled uh, in all these, but he really responded to to cubism. Love cubism. Love yeah. Cubism. Was it was it the was it the the layers and levels that that he that he enjoyed that the multi-dimensional I think it was the fact that Picasso had developed a system yeah a system to show real show real another side of reality that mm -hmm. might not be readily apparent yeah and yeah that's once I came home because I had taken a Picasso to show and tell and all the other kids had laughed at me and one mm -hmm, kid had mm -hmm. gotten fights over it. It was a big, you know, big thing. And they said, Oh, I can draw that with crayons. So my dad pulled me aside and showed me, explained cubism to me. So he goes, look, this is a nose. This is a nose with cubism. This is it. You're not a child can't draw this. I promise you. Blah, 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 blah. So I went back the next day and told the kids all this and I got beat up again. But <laughs> <laughs> just how it was. But um, so I kind of, kind of uh, like Picasso as well.
I think uh, I think one of my favorite works by your dad uh, is uh, I. It's one dash fifty five. That it it's marked at, at least uh, where I've seen it. it's it's this this large wood keyhole sort of piece which is just magnificent. Um, the competing wood grains offer this imbued motion um, and is juxtaposed so well um, that the underlying board provides this sort of uh, seascape at dawn or dusk um, with with clouds. And that's all that's all the competing wood grains. And and that that ability to read um your your medium and it is maybe maybe it harkens back to that watercolor sensibility in which in which you you control but you don't over control am i right on that absolutely he would abandon control yeah yeah one of his quotes was he aspired to total hysteria yeah in the creative process not and uh, he would do amazing things. He would yell and scream at his paintings. He would beat his paintings up. He would hit them with his fists. He would throw hammers at them. I'm not yeah. kidding. Yeah. Come across the room. Uh, that's how he developed. Uh, he's He developed a, a medium called the split level medium. And mm -hmm. he did it in the early 50s. No one else did it until the 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. that's, he's noted as that's something he did. He created. <laughs> and it's just. The kind of guy he was and the way he invented it he got mad at a painting and he threw a hammer at it and he had put masonite on top of another piece of masonite and it made a hole and when he looked through the hole it moved yeah and he said so he goes oh movement and uh -huh. like, he says it's always artists are always trying to figure out how to get movement you know so making a picture look like it was moving or had some inherent yeah movement, some implied movement was something that he strove to do. It was a conscious goal of his. And split level again, was, I, I think I think that that connects really strongly with that that jazz mentality. You absolutely. know, where where instead of instead of these static compositions, you have you have this these compositions in sublime movement. Musically and also visually, he yeah. well, he reached a point where he was doing everything physically yeah he would beat the piano and he would make this great avant-garde music and he re recorded <laughs> it we have some but there again they're very fragile and it's mm -hmm. you know and it, it's it's avant-garde it's not written music uh it, it's similar to some of the stuff that coltrane and some of the other jazz luminaries did yeah. uh sun Ra made a career out of pretty much yeah. Yeah. Know, this kind of stuff and um you know my father was doing it before them or with them yeah, yeah he had reached the same place that coltrane did bending and stretching those lines of of music yes and his final music sounded like a couple of cars crashing on the freeway wow and that's basically how he described it yeah um and i you know and it's it's a it takes work to listen to the piece but uh -huh. it's just like listening to, this to me if I listen to Sunrise, I can I can hear it and I get mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. It takes me a while. It kind of takes a little bit of work, mm -hmm. um, you know. And it's a little different than Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, it's uh, um, so Dad was all over that. And but he, your dad also had had a had kind of a traditional side. 
Uh, he he could be figurative uh, in in his artwork with with nudes uh, and and an exemplary piece that uh, that harkened back to to some of the uh, the early Kandinsky style pieces or or George Groh's style pieces uh, called Musicians uh, from 1950. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And his paintings of musicians are some of my favorite some of my favorite paintings that he ever did. Um, mm -hmm. but again, the, the essence of Tristan Meineke, and you can't say Tristan without saying angel, uh, they created a method of creating. Yeah. That's literally what his life was about. Yeah. And he was angry that it took him a while to create it because he could only do it for 20 years before he was in his mind too old, you know, mm -hmm. But it was so it was it was uh, a silly and humorous, but you know they they had a very for people that were way out there doing all this avant-garde stuff, they didn't have an avant-garde life. They right. lived a very normal life. Mom went to church every Sunday. Mm -hmm. You know, was and she's you know at coming home to these mannequins that are you know stretched right. out all over the place and painted blue and red and you know all this goofy nonsense. And um, that, you know, we look at this with great affection and humor, as both Tristan and Angel looked at it with great affection and humor. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was, it was magnificent. They had a, a, there was a quality of magnificence about them yeah. that never left. Yeah. And they could be dirty, covered with mud. They were still magnificent. <laughs> you know, it was just, it was an amazing thing to see. And then... Something happened that blindsided your mother's career and forced her to take a stand. Um, about that same same time, your father also faced a threat to his own career. But I, I want to go here uh, first. Your father was doing these big, bold works. Um, there's there's this uh, one piece that's reminiscent of of a three dimensional Guernica. Um, yes. you know, the piece I'm talking about, um, or, uh, B-90 is, is the piece that, that I, I saw from, from the portfolio. Beautiful piece. Yeah. Which relies on this organic decay and aging of the piece, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But as you, but, but I, I, I think to your, to your earlier point, the significance of that is the movement within that piece so so it's one piece that's layered over over a, a background piece and and as you move um you you catch different aspects uh the shadow play the light of the day the colors all of that comes into play um within that piece absolutely yeah and that's and, a large piece man and interestingly he was doing psychedelia before psychedelia was even the phrase was even coined. Yeah. He was yeah. doing it in the fifties and he had, and he had done it and left it. And then it came back in the sixties. He's like, well, I already did this. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? He, he looked askance at the whole <laughs> hippie movement, but it didn't, he, cause he didn't, he hated rock and roll. He loved jazz. So he was, he was angry that rock and roll, you know, got in the way, but that was a yeah, minor, yeah. very minor thing. So we're, we're talking about 1956, uh, mm -hmm. the Brown, 
versus Board of Education, the the landmark um, legislation that set up, uh, which ended uh, segregation in U.S. public schools. Chicago was experiencing at the time the the tail end of of the Great Migration. It had already had significant uh, racial issues. Uh, Ronnie Woo Woo, uh, the uh, the Cubs, uh, the gotcha. the Cubs fan, yep, is is a wonderful, wonderful friend. We had him on the show for a full show to tell his story, and he would talk about growing up on the South Side and not being allowed to come come north of uh, uh, of certain streets, North Avenue. Yeah, that was in that was in the late forties. Uh, and mid fifties into the end of the sixties and into the sixties. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and this is still a very segregated city better now, but it's still a very segregated city. In some ways it's better in some ways. Yeah. Not always, but Lincoln park some. is less segregated and less diverse than, than it was. Yeah. Significantly. Uh, Lincoln park is, is, more segregated than the Catholic Church, absolutely. <laughs> um, and it shouldn't be. You know, Lincoln Park used to be one of the greatest neighborhoods in in the city. Yeah, now yeah, it's one of the most boring neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, Old Town was 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 part of that neighborhood, and oh um, yeah, it was it was a great it was a great place. So so that was that was the context of of the society and and the city um so many black americans moved north to escape jim crow laws and ended up in in a de facto jim crow in the north um this changed the the change in the chicago population was not something the city's white dominated media wanted to see on on the screen right right and and your mom understanding that part of her audience were children of color wanted to reflect that in in the yeah. marketing which yeah. which you, you you would think at, at least in today's marketing understanding that's important hello but they canceled her. Talk about cancel culture. Man, they squashed her like a bug. Yeah. And yeah. she was pretty hard to squash. Yeah. And that, that's the thing. They squashed her career. But they never squashed her. Mm-hmm. And she never acted like she lost. Mm-hmm. And she would, the way she would tell it, she didn't lose. She won. Yeah. Because yeah. the changes, she told them. She said, you're wrong, I'm right. Mm-hmm. And you know it. Mm-hmm. And you know you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And this, she would say this, to, you know, she spoke truth to power before, again, before the phrase was coined. Yeah. She yeah. would tell, she told people, I remember she would, because people would sometimes, Tris and Angel were a lot. And sometimes people would try to diminish them. So they would say something in public at a party or something like that, derogatory mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. them. And mom would just say, look, you all know what right and wrong is. Just because something's common doesn't mean that it's right. Yeah. Says racism is wrong. Mm-hmm. 
you know it's wrong. Yeah, it's written yeah. on your heart that it's wrong. And that's, you know, a phrase that she took from the Bible. And she goes, you know it's wrong. So I won. Look at but she, look but she still walked look, she still walked away or or they or they let her walk away. No, she walked away. Okay. She was not, she found it intolerable yeah. to work in with people yeah. who were actively holding other people down. Yeah. She it offended her on every level of her being. Good for her. And and she wasn't going to tolerate it. Yeah. And that's the thing that sets them apart. Mm-hmm. They literally didn't care what anybody else thought. They cared what they thought was right and wrong. Yeah. And they would spend hours together trying to figure out what right and wrong was. Yeah. And once they figured out something was right, bam, that's what it was. That's how they were going to do it. What did what did that do for the family when when that happened? Family didn't really even you're talking about Scott and, and myself because yeah. the family was mom and dad, Scott and me. Yeah. We didn't know it because they never talked about it. Okay. To them, we never knew anything bad ever happened. Okay. We thought it was all that, you know, that was how she had made the decisions and this was, you know. Financially, how, how did that affect the family? Pardon? Financially, how did that affect the family? Oh, uh, it, it it caused issues. Mm-hmm. You know, when you go from a uh, one level of finances to another, that yeah. that's a that's a big deal. Yeah. But they were uh, entrepreneurial and they had they knew how to make money. Okay. And they weren't overly concerned with making money. They were more concerned with living a wonderful day. Yeah. They wanted each day to be something special. Mm-hmm. And that was what they were concerned with. That was really their their concern. They didn't really care about money. They their attitude was money grows on trees. They were terrible financial uh, financial handlers. They did made all kinds of mistakes financially because they didn't care. Yeah, they yeah. they knew that they had the ability to invent something that would make money. So they were never really worried, and many times they should have been worried. Yeah, yeah, but they weren't. But your dad was um, still selling paintings, right? Oh, my dad sold or, or... paintings two days before he died. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was uh, he was a piece of work in that regard, and he was and he was painting. He painted till his hand didn't work anymore. A couple of years before he died, well, so he painted over two centuries. There there were some amazing airbrush paintings on mm-hmm. newspaper mm-hmm. Uh, that they have these these stunning sort of cubist but these three dimensional uh, illusion pieces that are yes. that are fabulous. That was his later work. Yes. That's when he discovered airbrush, and his quote was, "Gee, I wish I had this thing twenty years ago." Yeah, those were those were magnificent. I I love them. They're some of my favorite pieces he ever did. Yeah, yeah. And he, he's you know, and, and and the guy could draw anything. So uh, the, the, when he actually put his mind to drawing something, it usually came out pretty, pretty, pretty well. Yeah, yeah. And, and those collages, I, I I really love them. The backlash against your mom got really serious though like like dangerous serious like death threats oh, yeah. serious death threats she was a hero simply the- simply for simply for asking that black children be reflected in marketing for a black show that was black that would brown. reach them mm-hmm. black and brown yeah you know yeah. and and in my friends the way Chicago is set up, segregated, 
there were no black families basically past uh, north of North Avenue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but my friends were Puerto Rican, Mexican, Japanese, Italian, German, and American. Yeah. So it yeah. was we were a bunch of American kids running around, and, and we didn't distinguish racially mm-hmm. uh, it, because it wasn't an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became an issue in in my teens because people started having gangs around racial, uh, you know, cliques for lack of a better word. But mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the early years, it, it really wasn't. Yeah. And uh, but we noticed when I would when we would drive, I would see black people and I would say, well, how come there is no black people on this part of the city? Yeah, because it was stunning. Yeah. And as a kid, as a young teenager, uh, my friends and I would walk, you know, we venture south of North Avenue. Yeah. Which was like this whole new world. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And all of a sudden it was like all the cars were older and all the people were out on the street and the music was playing and drums were beating. And I always liked it. Yeah. I always thought this neighborhood's better and more fun than the, than mine. So, <laughs> you know, I should stay here. So, you know, it was, they were, it's hard, it's hard to explain. When I was born, races were treated one specific way yeah whites ran everything browns were tolerated ish asians were asians and uh-huh. blacks were not tolerated were not considered good they were yeah. just bad you don't want that yeah and that's changed and that and the feelings of the society's acceptance of homosexuality yeah. and the changes have been so fast culturally speaking yeah it may seem slow to us because it takes 50 years or 100 years but culturally speaking it's very quick yeah and they live to see that and mom especially was angel especially was vindicated you know and she would i remember one one fellow that had been one of the people that put his thumb on her passed away and um she was so happy because uh, he was a, a huge racist, and some of the people at his uh, carrying the cough casket were black, which she, she thought would would made him very angry. Uh, <laughs> but it was so fun. So I know she took a lot of personal pleasure in the fact that her vision of society had became it was what society became. Yeah. So yeah. she considered herself the winner in that. She never ever thought of herself as a loser. Never ever thought of herself as a victim, and she was. But uh, she was a victim. But um, she never thought of herself that way. What do you think she would have thought about the LGBTQ and trans issue in particular, um, the, those conversations that are happening right now? Well, it's kind of hard to predict what she would have thought. Sure. Because in her day homosexuality was considered anathema at Mm -hmm. worst and at best it was considered an illness yeah and it was listed as an illness yeah so to her based on the science of the day homosexuality was an illness yeah the views that she was raised under and taught and that's what Mm -hmm. science of the day told her yeah now, when it changed, and I forget when they changed the designation, I think it was 72 or 73, something like that. Okay. She went right with it. Okay. She was like, oh, okay. You know, 
Wow. Because what she always said. Very progressive. Uh, what she what she always told me about homosexuals, she said, these are God's children. God loves all his children. So you have to love his children. She was consistent. Yes. In other words. She said, don't, don't ever denigrate anyone for this. It's not any of your business. I, I wanted to touch on the the people that came to your your home uh, at 2022 North Cleveland. People like Tony Bennett and yep. Jerry Lewis. And yep. you said Fraser Thomas before. Jack yep. Brickhouse, um, Lloyd yes. Pettit, Charlie Weber, uh, all these great, great names. Uh, Aaron Siskind. Wow, is, is all, all I can say. It was a creative vortex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wherever they went, there was an area of a lot of gravity. Yeah. And that gravity pulled creative people down into it. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, it, it's no coincidence that Aaron Siskin and my dad created groundbreaking art, photographic art, groundbreaking visual Indeed. art together simultaneously. Yeah. yeah. 100 yards from each other. <laughs> uh, you know, this was, and, and they both, uh, they were, there was a little friction between them. You know, they got along professionally and they got along, you know, socially, but there was a little friction. Like, uh, dad would say, well, photography isn't necessarily art. <laughs> And then Aaron would go, whoa, <laughs> and it was it was that kind of thing, which was which was pretty funny. I write poetry, but I also write novels and, and books, which I prefer. Uh, I had I had an argument with a uh, with a poet friend of mine, uh, in which I said uh, poets uh, are lazy novelists, and and he immediately shot back and said uh, novelists just can't get to the point. So six one uh, six and one half dozen of another, right? Absolutely. I find poetry impossible to write. It's very difficult. Yep. Very hard. I find short stories hard to write. Writing writing is difficult. Indeed. Indeed. Music is fun. There you go. There you go. Are you still are you still playing? Uh not really because the the muscle the muscles aren't there anymore. Okay. okay. And the calluses, but I play some. All right. Uh, I still write. You know, I've got I got a whole bunch of tunes laying around. Nice, nice. Yeah. yeah. Um so so where do you go from here uh with your your mother and father uh with uh Tristan and Angel's story? Well and legacy, I suppose. The legacy will in some regards, some respects take care of itself. Okay. The story, though, is something that is personally very important to me. And mm -hmm. I think it's a story that needs to be told. I think there are a lot of people who would find very positive role models, for lack of a better word, with yeah. Tristan and Angel. Yeah. There were two icon iconoclasts who never bowed, never, never, you know, uh, acquiesced, never surrendered, never sold out. And they could not be swayed with money, money, power you know, sex, whatever people get swayed mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. couldn't touch them. And that, that was probably their most stunning quality. They were unbridled. Uh, where can, uh, where can people go to find out more about uh, Kristen Meineke and uh, Angel Casey? Tmeineke.com. Uh -huh. That's well, T like Tom, M like Mary, E I, N like Nancy, E C K E.com. And the right. other one's very easy. Angelcasey.com. 
Uh, we'll we'll post links to those in the in the notes below. Uh, any upcoming shows planned for your for your dad's work? Yes, we have two. We have an exhibition at Tapestry Community Center on Irving Park Road. Um, All right, get the address for me. And we have another one at the Bridgeport Art Center that's going to start the third Friday in May. All right, it's going to be on Meineke Studios architect uh with robert bruce tag which was my father's partner very mm -hmm. notable architect designed auditorium theater and he is an artist as well so we're going to have plans that they built they built 800 units of lincoln park nice and we're going to have the actual plans there we're going to have art from both both the tag and meineke and it's at the bridgeport art center wow that's fantastic 3824 West Irving Park is the, the uh, address for the... It's right around the corner from here, man. Uh, and, and when is uh, when does that open up? That's that open tapestry? now. And okay. we'll be running till uh, basically the week of Thanksgiving. Okay. And when, what uh, what what kind of... What selection of pieces That's are... abstract art. It's some of uh, his big abstract pieces. Oh, wonderful. One of the great pieces we call Burning... Yeah. With, that's called Burning with Awareness is there. And it's the first time in my life I've ever seen it hung with enough space around it, really? enough dead space around it to actually see what this thing is. To really, to really, it's it's something. It's, oh, it's fantastic! Something. And it's also ironically hilarious because it's church, uh -huh. and my dad was very agnostic. Uh, he had, you know, he was a mom was the churchy one, uh, but dad was very agnostic. So uh, his art is hanging in a church, and the walls didn't tumble down. This is real Chicago, real stuff. And thank you so much for having me on, my friend. Brad, Brad, you were wonderful, man. That was this is awesome. My special thanks to Brad Meineke for joining me today, and for all of you who listen, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for updates on all of our future programs. Music and sound bites, courtesy of YouTube. All rights reserved for the owner and license owner. Links to the guests and the artists that we spoke about and played on the show are in the notes below. For Playtime, I'm W.C. Turk.